Bible's church, open up to John chapter 17. Twelve-year-old Chessa was dying of cancer. She didn't have long for this world when she announced to the Make-A-Wish Foundation she wanted to meet retired quarterback Troy Aikman. Now, she had never seen Troy play, but she had often heard from her dad about what an incredible quarterback he was, and he was. But she had seen this handsome announcer regularly on the Fox station as he announced the Cowboy games, and she fell in love with him. So the three-time Super Bowl champion was called and invited to come and meet Chessa and get to know her and to engage in a very special game she wanted to play with him. She wanted to play Yahtzee. How many of you here play the game of Yahtzee? Okay, a lot of you have. It's just a simple dice game. There's five dice. You try to roll different combinations. You earn points for those combinations. Whoever has the most points wins. Well, she wanted to play Troy. He agreed to see her and to... To, to bring her to the star when the Washington Redskins were in town for a big game. So we sent a limo over to her house to bring her to the star facilities there in Frisco. However, in all the excitement, she left her Yahtzee game at home. Now, when they told the limo driver what the limo was, or the, the, he said, well, no problem. They pulled over. and I, It was back when they still had Toys R Us, and they picked up a Yahtzee game there. And then they headed to the star. When she arrived at the end of a very long haul was her favorite quarterback in the world. And he was saying, Chessa, get over here. I've been waiting for you all day. And with a smile that stretched from ear to ear, Troy gave her a huge hug, signed autographs with her, and even gave her an actual game jersey that he had used when he had played against the Redskins once in his career. But before long, Chessa wasn't interested in the autographs, and she wasn't interested in the jersey. She said, I came to play Yahtzee. And she said, will you play Yahtzee with me? And he said, yes, but I want to warn you. I'm not going to show you any mercy. She said, I wouldn't have it any other way. And mom said they locked horns right there in one of the star uh, locker rooms. Chessa's eyes never left the table, she said. And the two were matched well, and the battle was fierce. But when the score was finally tallied, Troy was ahead. But the Hall of Famer was quick to declare that Chessa, last wishes capture our hearts in a way that few other things do. The desire to fulfill last wishes, even when they're not through a specific organization like the Make-A-Wish program, capture our hearts, especially when they're family members. We have moved some uh, calendar events and things to take care of last wishes for some members in our own family, my sister in particular. Even the deathbed desires of those who are on death row who have committed enough of a heinous crime that they're going to be put to death, even their last wishes are still respected in many states where they get a last meal and they get to talk to one last person that's meaningful to their lives. Because last words and last wishes capture our hearts in a way very few other things do. And I have to tell you that because we're going to be looking at some last words this morning that have captured my heart for decades. They're actually contained in a prayer. A prayer that Jesus prays just hours before he's put to death for crimes committed. Now, not his crimes, because he was absolutely sinless, the scripture says. But he was put to death for your crimes and my crimes. Now, last week we looked at the first half of his prayer and we saw that he prays, first of all, for himself. That God would turn him to his glory that he once knew in the presence of the Father before the world was ever even created. Then secondly, he prays for his disciples that God would protect them. From the evil one, not from suffering and pain, 
Because God had actually used suffering and pain to shape and mold his own life while he walked here in his God body. And he was going to continue to use suffering and pain to mold these disciples. But what he was asking for was protection from a wedge that Satan most certainly was going to try through seduction to separate them from their rightful place in God's family. And so we asked God, please prevent that. And then lastly, he prayed for you. Listen with me again. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I'm going to ask you to pray with me about our text this morning. Father, it's not just us who long for unity. So many in other from other Christian heritages, like the First Presbyterian Church, have made it clear their longing for unity, that exclusivity no longer is going to be settled on or satisfied with. And neither is that for us. We want so much to be connected to and with those who are sincerely trying to follow Jesus Christ and make Him Lord. And so, this morning, would you bless First Presbyterian as they break your word, as they... Um, offer themselves in songs to you as they break the bread and take the cup and remember your son's death just as we are doing this morning. Please, God, bless them as you're blessing us. We ask this in Jesus' name and everyone's sin. I don't know that I explain why the words here in John 17 grip my heart in the way they do, except for they're the words of my Lord's dying wish. If anybody's last words matter, I think these ought to matter to us. And Jesus, knowing that the end is near, prays one last time for his followers. And what stands out to me is that he doesn't pray for their success. He doesn't pray for their safety. He doesn't pray for their happiness. What he prays for is their unity. He prayed that they would hang in and hang on to one another. And notice as he prays for them, he also prays for those who would believe because of their teaching. And that means us, which is nuts. In his last prayer, God has his mind and his heart in his son on you. Jesus prayed that you and I would be one. Man, that's a tall order. And of all the lessons that we could draw from this verse, I don't want us to miss this obvious one. And that is our unity matters to God. Would you all say that with me? Here we go. Our unity matters to God, and it does. The father hates to see his kids fuss. Anybody here have their kids fussing this morning? Parents just do their best. We do, don't we? And we have this idea that with a little bit of help, our children won't fuss much. Isn't that right? We think we're going to have the least fussy kids of all. But we do, and you know what? That's the same thing in a church. Any church, we think as leaders that we can do all we can do to prevent the fussing. We can't do that. There's kids in here who are growing up. But disunity disturbs God. Like it disturbs you when you see your kids fuss. Like you kids 
See, your parents fuss. It, it goes deep in your heart. And why this matters so much to God is this, it found in John 13, 35. Because you see, all people are going to know you're my disciples if you have love for each other. No love among you? Not much wisdom, not much witness in the world that you're mine. They may not even believe that my son's coming matters if you're fussing all the time. Listen to what the word says here. May they also be one in us so that the world might believe that you've sent me. Isn't that interesting how he ties our unity to the world believing that Christ was sent and it even matters? But he does. Now I read that as unity is this place that creates soil that whenever we live or speak the gospel, it can connect with people's hearts. I don't know how you read that, but that's how I read it. But disunity messes up that soil. Disunity disables the ability of the gospel to take root in people's lives. Maybe that's why Paul Billemeyer wrote these words. The continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. Now, that's just one man's opinion, but I've got to tell you, I agree with him. I think it's why it's so tough to share Christ with other people. Because of the soil of disunity that many of us, self-included, are responsible for. Because if unity is a key to reaching the most, shouldn't we make that a precedent in our life to make sure that we're as one as we possibly can be? Paul encouraged us to make it a propriety, a propriety in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Man, I don't... This is probably, it's probably not one of the scriptures any of us have underlined or memorized in our, in our Bibles, but it should be. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Work very hard. Do all you can. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, does that mean that we're always going to agree with each other? <laughs> this is family. No. Does it mean that there will never be a controversy here? This is family. No. Does it mean that all the votes we ever take in any meeting are going to be unanimous? No. This is family. But it does mean that we hang in and we hang on to each other, even when the votes don't all add up to one. Now, notice... Nowhere are we encouraged to build unity. I think that's interesting. All we're told to do is simply to keep it. Don't mess it up. See, from God's perspective, there's one flock and there's one shepherd. John 10, verse 16. Paul will say it a little bit different this way. For there is one spirit who has baptized us all into one body. You're looking at one body here with one head. That's the way it should be. And Paul's saying that's the church. The Spirit joins all of those baptized in Christ's name into one body. He does that. And there's one head. There's unity here. When the head's not attached to the body, not good. When an arm's not attached to the body, not good. When a leg's not attached to the body, not good. There's one flock and there's one shepherd. All of that describes a unity that God wants us not to create, but to protect he said, well, Jimmy, how in the world do you do that? Well, I've got three points here, and it's going to fix us all. You ready? Here we go. No, I don't have a lesson like that. I wish I did. Does it mean that we compromise our convictions? 
No. Does it mean that we abandon the truths that we cherish? No. But here's what it does mean. We look hard at the attitudes that we have holding on to those truths and beliefs. And can I confess, sometimes mine's been pretty stinky. Two Januarys ago, I traveled to Ruidosa to hunt mule deer. A couple of you have been here for the Flying J Wranglers that we've had here at our church. We hosted them twice. Had a chance to hunt mule deer on their ranch. It's not very large. It's about 20 acres. But it's loaded with deer. And on the third day in the snow, I killed a nice buck. And the folks that we were staying with came and they took pictures and helped me to take the buck down from the mountain where it was down to where, the, uh, where we were going to process it. And I had left my blasted hoist back at the garage. That's what it looks like. Um, at the couple's house that we were staying at. And Gail said, listen, I'll go get it for you. You just start getting ready and, uh, and I'll be right back. She gets to the house. She calls me. She says, I'm, I'm not seeing the hoist anywhere. And I said, it's got to be there because I've looked all over the truck and it's just not here. She said, all right, I'm going to look five more minutes, but you look for it before I hang up. She said, I've looked for it. It's not here. While we were waiting for her, right next to the truck was a tool shed that James Hobbs had. And it was loaded with shovels and four-wheelers. And uh, I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, there will be a hoist or some kind of a rope like that inside. I couldn't believe it. Six feet from the truck, there was a hoist that looked just like mine and in the box just like mine that I brought from Texas. Why are you laughing? Here's what's really funny. I actually thought, James has a hoist just like mine. I actually thought. And then the synapses connected. And I went, ah. Oh. I have just given my family decades of fodder to laugh at for this. And they have. Why is it that we can be so wrong about so much when we just knew that we were so right? You're laughing because you do that too. The disciples experienced this, in particular John, who authored the life story that we read from earlier this morning. Now, I've been thinking, if God's going to use somebody to write a gospel down, certainly this has to be someone whose perspectives are right on everything. No, in Mark's telling of Jesus' story, in his gospel, he records an event in the life of Jesus. Amazingly, John leaves out in his, it's in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel. And he remembers a time when John had a dilemma. And the other disciples shared that dilemma because they had run into somebody who God was using to do amazing works, and they didn't know him. He wasn't in their group. This fellow was casting out demons, something the disciples, oh, by the way, had struggled with just a few verses earlier, just the day before. And this guy was casting them out in Jesus' name. Not just God's name, in Jesus' name. I'm telling you, everything about him was right. He had the right results. He had the right heart. But there was one problem. He was doing it in the wrong group. And the disciples didn't know what to think about that. Neither have a lot of disciples since then. So they escorted him to the gangplank on the Good Boat Fellowship, and they asked him to take a walk, long walk. That's what they did. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. And the Apostle John wants to know, did we do the right thing? And I honestly don't think he's saying that from a cocky perspective. Maybe he was. I think it was probably from a confused perspective because I can say for honestly most of us, it would be confusion, not cockiness. Did we do the right thing? 
Because what do you do when good things are being done in another Christian group, from another heritage? What do you do when you like the fruit, but you're not sure about the orchard? I mean, we're not talking divisive acts. We're not talking heretical teachings, but good works that give glory to God. What do you do with that? Well, before we note what Jesus himself says, let me talk a little bit about what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, John, if they're nice people, they're in. He doesn't say that because generosity and benevolence are not the foundational marks of a disciple. They're not. Just because a group is delivering toys at Christmas doesn't mean they're Jesus followers. Just because they send money to flood victims or to famine victims doesn't mean that they're in the family of God. Jesus isn't making a statement calling for blind tolerance. He would never do that. Oh, but listen to me clearly. He doesn't endorse, does not endorse, the blanket rejection that many of us have endorsed when we've questioned who qualifies for passage on the Good Boat Fellowship. This would have been the perfect time, I think, for Jesus to come up with a list of regulations to measure every possible candidate by. And if a checklist were necessary, I think this would have been the ideal time to tell us about that. He doesn't. Note what he does say. Don't stop him. Don't stop it. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. And here's the verse that I had Cody under, underlined a while ago. For whoever's not against us is for us. That's a good thing for a senior to remember as they're moving out into the world in the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and encounters other people that also have the name of Christ. How do you embrace them? Exclude them? If they don't come from the same heritage that he comes from? Now, I think this response that Jesus gives is chock full of good advice. Because if you're looking for how do you respond to a good heart from a Christian heritage that's not like yours, I think this is the text you go to of any of them. Jesus says, embrace them first. Don't exclude them, especially those who prioritize their faith under the name of Jesus Christ and who produce fruit consistent with Jesus Christ. Let's look at the fruit first. Stop and ask, is this good fruit? Is it healthy fruit for the betterment of other people and not for patting someone else's pocket? If the answer is yes, then take a note to self. The presence of fruit is more important than the pedigree of the orchard. The fruit in a life means more than the name on a sign. And so if the person that's in question is bearing fruit, give thanks for them. Do what you can to help them. Embrace them first before you're tempted to exclude them. Because a good tree, Jesus says, cannot produce what? Bad fruit. Those are his words. So be thankful that God's at work in other groups than yours. Number two, be sure to look at their faith. This is huge. In whose name are they doing the work? Mark chapter 9 says Jesus is first accepting of the man's work because it was done in Jesus' name. Now some of you may be asking, well, what does that matter? Well, I've got a piece of paper that I can take that piece of paper down to Comanche Trace's clubhouse and I can exchange it. Just a piece of paper, ordinary copy paper with some writing on it. And I can exchange it for a putter or a brand new golf shirt. All because Mark Cotier's name is signed on the bottom of it and says I can. Now, I was going to bring it here, but Gail said don't take it, you'll leave it there. So I left it in the glove box. She's a wise woman. Mark Cotier's name has authority to take a piece of paper and turn it into merchandise. Jesus has more 
Jesus has so much more. Peter proclaims salvation is only authorized in one name, Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, he wrote, for there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we can be saved. I wish sometimes he didn't say that. Can I be honest along with some of you? I wish everybody could just be saved because they were good or nice. I wish that. But the reality is the story tells us nobody's good enough for that. That's why there had to be a cross that the only one who was good enough could die on to pay for my sin debt. And that so matters that the only way that a person can be saved is to recognize the truth of that. Or why in the world would God do that so that they can be saved? Some don't believe salvation's work is under the name of Jesus Christ because they're relying upon their own good name. They rest on salvation of works, not of grace. They aren't working under the name of God because they don't think they need to. They're working under the salvation by self-atonement, not Jesus' atonement. And they're just fine on their own, thank you. Well, as much as I have breath, I want to help them in the most loving way I can to say, but you're not fine. And God takes a false salvation seriously. And we should too. But there are many believers. There are many Christian followers, Christian heritages, who are casting their hopes on God's firstborn son and who put their faith in the cross of Christ and what it accomplished over what they do and they can accomplish. And so I just want to ask us as a church family, if they're relying upon Jesus' blood to be the sufficient sacrifice for their sin debt, and so are you, could it be that we're family? Yes. Jimmy, do you mean that they don't have to be in my group? No, they don't. They don't have to share my background? No. They don't have to do everything the way that I do? They don't. They don't have to see everything the way that I see it? Does anybody? I came across a scary poem this week. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right, no one less confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat, and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then can I have fellowship with you. I tried to have those words worked into my marriage vows, but Gail wasn't buying it. Church, for unity's sake, on the good boat fellowship, what is more important? What I think or what God thinks? What's more important, what I think or what God thinks? Amen, sister. Oh, it was you? Angelo? boy. The preacher right there one of these days, I'm telling you. What's more important, the passenger and its fruit and the pastor and their faith or what I think? I want to look at the fruit. I want to look at their faith. And you know what? John would agree. Interestingly, later in John's life when he had traveled a few more miles living in the grace of Jesus and bearing fruit for Jesus, that the one who was known as the son of thunder, bold guy, boisterous guy, would make knowing who is a disciple of Jesus just this simple. Read his words. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God has God living inside and the person lives in God. 
I think it's ironic that the one who challenged the simple answer of the master eventually offered a simple answer himself about who's in the family. And I want to ask all of us this question. Shouldn't it be that simple? Where there's faith in the king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and there's repentance from me trying to be king, and there's new birth in his kingdom, there's a brother or sister in Christ, a Jesus follower. And that's why when I meet a man or a woman whose eyes are obviously on the Lord, I treat him as family first. And that's all that Jesus is asking. Treat him as family first. Don't exclude him first. That was Paul's approach when he wrote a corrective letter to the church in Corinth. He wrote to a group of followers that were guilty of practically every sin in the book, from abusing the Lord's Supper, to sexual immorality, to arguing over the Holy Spirit, to breaking up the church into cliques. But how does he address them? I beg you, brothers and sisters. <laughs> you mean that mess, that mess of folks? Yes. I beg you, brothers and sisters in Christ. When the church in Rome is debating whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols, did Paul tell them to start two churches? No. One for the meat eaters, one for the non-meat eaters? No. To the contrary, he says, Christ has accepted you and so you should accept each other, which will bring glory to God. Oh, church, is God asking us to do anything more than he's already done for us? Hasn't he gone a long way in accepting us right where we are? And if God is tolerant of my mistakes and my messes, can he be tolerant of other people's mistakes and messes who are trying to follow Christ? If God allows me with my failures and fiascos to call him dad, shouldn't I expect the same and extend the same to others? Which is why God reminds the Christians at Rome, God has accepted them. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master servants stand or fall, and they will stand. Those are powerful words. For the Lord is able to make them stand. The last thing I want to try and do is knock down someone that God's trying to make stand. And I have to confess, there have been times in my life I have. And I'm so sorry. And this church is developing a reputation for being an embracive church, much more so than it was ever an exclusive church. And I love that. So many of you participate in both the men and women's Bible study fellowship. The women's study fellowship is held right here in our church. Hundreds of women come from all different Christian heritages here to assemble and to study the Word of God. Some of our men go and join the, the men's group that meets in the Zion Lutheran Church. I think that makes God smile. So many of us join the CSI project, the Christian Service Initiative, and, and try to get into the community and just serve people wherever they are along with other brothers and sisters in Christ just because that would be the thing the Lord wants us to do. And I think that makes God smile. So many of you have applauded the swapping of pulpits with impact and have asked, well, when are we going to do that again? Because that type of action, not just talking, but that type of action says <clears throat> family first family first. We welcome you to come and tell us about this Jesus that you know. We can share with you the Jesus that we know. I think that makes God smile. And because of it, some walls are falling. In this generation, like they've never fallen before, suspicions are dying. They were held tight over years and years about people who are not in our group. Jesus followers, both in faith and in the fruit of Jesus, are rubbing shoulders with us and we're finding out this is pretty cool. And I love that. Now, before we 
try to attempt any more of that and try to break down even more walls that are dividing us from being family. Maybe we've got to heal some dividing walls in our own church, in our own marriages. So to wrap this lesson, I'm going to ask you to stand, please. Let's do some of that. If while you stand, would you please just bow your heads? God hates to see his kids fuss, and I just want to ask if there's something going on in a marriage, in your family, in this church, with someone that you're just at odds with, I'm going to ask you to, to think about that person. And over that person's name, if you can just envision their name, would you place a cross, a cross that, that Jesus is asking us to take up and to get on for this relationship? What can you do to help reconcile and to bring wholeness to that marriage, to that brother or sister here in our church family, to that friend, to that child parenting relationship? What can you do to get on your cross to offer life into that relationship that maybe right now is pretty dead? Father, together we come as a body of Jesus Christ. You heard us open up the beginning of our services asking for blessings upon First Pres as they, they try to follow you try to study your word, try to break bread with you. But Father, really, before we even go there, you've asked us to look inside. And where we've got relationships right now in homes, in marriages, friendships, in this church family, where there's bitterness and anger, would you please help us to get on our own crosses? You've asked us to, and we're asking, Father, for your help to do that, to even want to do that, to bring about unity here in this family before we try to extend it outside. We realize salvation belongs to you. And we realize that our only shot at unity is to, is to keep it up, not to create it. And so we come together as one family to honor you by praising you and declaring to the world salvation belongs to our Lord and to us as we try our best to work that salvation into loving each other like Christ has loved us. Father, we love you. Please help us do that. Not just declare it in song, but please help us leave here this morning to do just that. In the name of Jesus, we pray and everyone said.